Hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of The Surge. My name is Saud and um, today I'm sort of going to transition from the white belt to blue belt conversation that we've been having uh, to something a little bit more standardized for everybody up to black belt level and that would be um, guidelines for, for the management of COVID-19 in the ICU. Now, this is particular in scope to the ICU. I'm not talking about escalation of oxygenation. I'm not talking about what to do at the bedside. I'm not talking about how to take the sample, although we'll talk about all these things at a different date, I suspect, given the feedback and the requests that I'm getting. I'm just talking about what we should be providing in the ICU based on multiple guidelines that have come out at this point. Uh, some of these are guidelines from a specific country. Some of them have been... Um, manifest in a handbook, the Zhejiang University's handbook uh, for the treatment of uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. And some of them are, are, are from various different bodies, like the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Surviving Sepsis Guideline. And that's sort of the basis of my talk. It's all of these different guidelines in general and how they address things and, and where they're coming from. And really, just a discussion on, on on what I've been hearing online and, and how how I feel about them, for lack of a better term. So it's very specific towards ICU patients, so what we should be doing for them. So in terms of uh, personal protective equipment, so when this whole thing first started, at least internationally, there was a very strong advocacy that we should be wearing N95 masks for everything. And intuitively, that would make sense. But with the shortages that we're seeing all around the world, there's been more and more advocacy towards wearing N95 masks only for high risk of aerosol or fluid transmission and wearing standard masks for other patient encounters that might be limited. For example, just a quick bedside assessment from the end of the bed. The rest of it remains the same. So the rest of the full PPE from the, the headgear or the... the um, the head garment, to the eyewear, to the gloves, to the gowns, all of them propose the same thing. There's also a very strong proposal that negative pressure rooms be used for all procedures in the Chinese literature. In the more Western literature and local state guidelines, uh, they veer towards using it for aerosol or high risk of spillage and contamination procedures. So uh, these include uh, intubation, bronchoscopy, tracheostomies, um, tube exchanges, and the use of uh, BiPAP, if you're going to use BiPAP, which, by the way, none of them say is a good thing. So just to make this clear, BiPAP, bad idea. And there's a very strong advocacy that whatever you're going to do, the most experienced person should be doing it if it's going to be a procedure. Uh, this obviously affects cross-contamination rates, but also affects the time of exposure, and exposure time seems to be another factor that they're looking at and trying to avoid extending. In terms of the diagnostic samples, the gold standard that's been advocated for for patients in the ICU who have not been diagnosed definitively seems to be a lower respiratory tract sample or bronchoalveolar lavage. Now, I'm going to be honest. In Italy, they're using CT scans of the chest as a screening modality for surgical patients, just wearing my surgeon's hat. This has not been mentioned in critical care guidelines or guidances. So CT chest has not been mentioned. RT-PCR for a lower respiratory tract sample in unconfirmed cases is the gold standard that they adhere to. And I happen to agree with that, 
given the uh, positive predictive value, uh, overall cost efficiency, and uh, the uh, definitive nature for bronchoalveolar lavage, as well as the fact that you're getting a two-for-one deal if you're intubating a patient. I, I would say, you know, video laryngoscopy is what I like for, for, for white to blue belts, maybe even purple belts sometimes. But uh, bronchoalveolar lavage is, is my go-to personally. If I'm dealing with a, a condition where I'm going to need to get a sample to confirm the diagnosis, even if it's not a COVID-19 positivity. In terms of diagnosing and monitoring shock, so knowing whether your patient's in shock or respiratory failure uh, alone, because vanilla respiratory failure prognosis is actually pretty good in COVID-19 patients. It's it's <laughs> it may not sound like it's good, but it's pretty good. When you when you read you know peer-reviewed and non-peer-reviewed data that's coming in now, just vanilla respiratory failure, least of your worries, man. Like you'll get through it, but. When you have multifocal septic shock forming, it's a bit of a problem. And what seems to be clear is that Q-SOFA, SOFA, lactates, they're all not as reliable as we would like to think. And so there's a strong feeling in both sets of guidelines that capillary refill and lactate, as opposed to specific scoring system, are the way to go for diagnosing shock. And that a leg-raised test will tell you fluid responsiveness. And you should prioritize fluid restriction over a fluid liberal stat strategy. I think that across the board, most intensivists think in that manner when it comes to um, a distributive component uh, septic shock. But it's just to let everybody know that, that, that they are saying that fluid restriction is a good idea. Uh, crystalloids seem to be their preferred uh, fluid of choice. Uh, dextran, albumin, starch are all bad, bad, bad. So for those of you who are listening to this in the Middle East, I know that there are certain people who are extremely uh, well-respected in the field who feel strongly that albumin and Lasix uh, is a good combination uh, in septic shock to quote-unquote open up the kidneys. This does not work during a shock state. This does not benefit the shock state. Forced diuresis does not help the shock state. I would contend that even if there were to be some benefit towards using albumin and Lasix as a diuretic method, we would need to recognize that that should not be done in somebody on vasopressors in a shocked state. Buffered, and that's all I'm going to say about that today. Buffered crystalloids, uh, ideally 0.9% uh, saline or Ringer's lactate, and you should be guided by fluid responsiveness. In other words, don't just give it to, just to give it. Give it because there is some response that you're getting. Um, and th these recommendations are centered around the unstable resuscitative phase of, 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 of the uh, treatment of the condition in the ICU. Now, once you've done that, I, I would say, and the guidelines don't advocate for this 100%. In fact, nobody really mentions it. I would do an echo at this point. So you have a hypotensive uh, COVID-19 positive patient. Uh, they're not doing amazingly. You're citing a line right now. You're using your ultrasound for the central line anyways. It's in the room. I would do a rush ultrasound and maybe a bedside echo if you're trained to do it. And the reason why is it will tell you whether you have a strong cardiogenic component or not because you have some decisions to make here and it will tell you how fluid responsive the patient is going to be with an actual sort of 
I wouldn't say data point, but I would say something that, that supports your decision-making process. And uh, they strongly advocate for uh, levofed or vasopressin once you've reached the limits of your fluid responsiveness, no matter what modality you're going to use, as opposed to dopamine. Uh, and this has been mentioned both by the Chinese and by the uh, data and the SCCN. And it's because dopamine uh, seems to be more arrhythmogenic and has been associated with higher cardiac events overall. Now, this is a weak recommendation, and I do realize that in the States, there's a very strong comfort with dopamine. I used to use it a lot in the States personally and had pretty okay outcomes with it. But I'm just saying that levofed and vasopressin might be a good idea. And you should target sort of the bare minimums. A map of 60 to 65, probably guided by urine output with no diuretics. Let me say that again, no diuretics. Uh, obviously, this only applies if there's no evidence of primary cardiac dysfunction. Otherwise, if there's an evidence of cardiac dysfunction, you might want to look at that too. So steroids. Steroids usually have a bad name. And I don't like steroids. I'm going to be honest. There's a weak recommendation in the SCCM guidelines. And there is a recommendation for it to be targeted in intractable shock that is refractory with patients with interleukin-6 issues, like interleukin-6 deviations that could be related to cortisol deficiency or evidence of cortisol deficiency in the Chinese literature. So the Chinese are saying do it if you think that the cortisol is an issue, but don't do it otherwise. In the other recommendations that I've read, steroids haven't even been mentioned. And in the SCCM, they are mentioned with a weak positive recommendation in refractory shock. There is absolutely no consensus on best dose or how to give it. So you're going to have to give it based on your own institution. Like I said, I'm not very happy about it. <laughs> so oxygenation, your first line is O2 nasal. I would contend that if they're only on O2 nasal with no signs of end organ perfusion problems or states of shock, being in an ICU might not be of benefit for other things than monitoring. Monitoring can be done at the bedside with a good nurse in the regular ward if you have a shortage. Your second line is high flow nasal cannula versus uh, venturi mask uh, versus uh, a rebreather mask versus ambu bagging. No BiPAP. Everybody's against BiPAP, guys. Do not use BiPAP. I keep seeing these videos out of various different hospitals in the U.S. where they have BiPAP on patients in two-hour intervals, uh, cycling between patients. I'm not sure how much you're helping your patients there. But if it's that's the only thing that you have, then go for it. Indications for intubation are worsening respiratory status over 72 hours or two hours of lack of improvement with high-flow nasal cannulas or extreme desaturations with blood gas proven respiratory failure with no improvement. There are also subjective indications that we talked about earlier. Those apply here obviously as well. In summary, do not delay intubation. Be aggressive and understand that you're saving lives by intubating them. So 75% of the mortalities that happened in the initial hit that they had in Wuhan were patients who didn't get to a tube in time. They weren't intubated in time. And this is from the Chinese non-peer-reviewed data. Okay, I would not recommend using uh, uh, BiPAP. Again, BiPAP or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation has been advocated for in the SCCM. with close monitoring and they make it clear that it's with close monitoring i would not use bipap on these patients i would intubate them if they need bipap 
The advanced settings seem to be pointing towards an assist control mode with a rate of uh, 12 to 18, lower tidal volumes, uh, FIO2 for a saturate of 90%, and high peep. So they're very peep responsive. So I would start at a peep of 10, personally, okay? They're very peep responsive from what I've seen. So go for it. Go crazy with the peep, man. They, they, they like it, okay? Uh, ARDSnet uh, protocols are advocated for patients with full-blown ARDS, as is proning in ECMO, uh, which you should consider with due diligence. You know, th there is an algorithm in the SCCM. I, I would go with the ARDSnet protocol and proning. Uh, I would not use uh, Nitro. I would not use uh, Hi-Fi because they don't help in this particular situation. Antimicrobials and retrovirals. So good questions from everybody. Prophylactic doses of antibiotics are not advocated for, and I don't think that you're helping anybody, especially with the potential of a shortage in that sector too. The use of antiretrovirals was originally met with a strong advocacy, especially uh, combination therapies. Uh, different flavors seem to be coming in every 72 hours. I'm not being facetious. They are coming in every 72 hours. They're initially tested in non-ICU patients and found to be of benefit in terms of symptom control. This includes uh, the hydroxychloroquine fiasco that, that, that we're living through right now. I'm not going to comment on it, but I have my own strong feelings about it. I, I believe in peer-reviewed literature because it helps us strengthen our knowledge base. And I, I don't believe in, in having a discussion on television that may not be of benefit. I hope that it helps more people than it hurts when you prescribe hydroxychloroquine. But all of this data for combination therapies of this nature seem to be coming from healthier patients than what we would be dealing with in an ICU. And so therefore, even when it is advocated, it's sort of advocated with a weak recommendation as a last-ditch effort for treatment refractory patients. And, and I would contend that it's either going to be a situation where we're starting it early to inhibit the, the viral load, or it's going to be a situation where they're in the ICU with multi-organ failure and the viral load is not the main factor here. It's the ability to provide supportive care. So in conclusion, intubate them early, ventilate them early, judicious use of vasopressors, minimum amount of fluid that will lead to a fluid responsiveness and benefit, and good luck and thank you. Um, I have multiple questions in my head about these guidelines that I would like to ask you. What do you think about renal replacement therapy? What do you think about immunoglobulins? What do you think about plasma exchange? Should they be included in the guideline, given the fact that we don't really have a quote-unquote cure yet, right? Let me know your thoughts, and please subscribe. Have a good day.